uh, this morning, if you would turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 4. This morning, we're going to consider the first 26 verses of chapter 4. And as is our custom, we will pray to the Lord and ask for Him to reveal the truth of the passage to us and ask the Holy Spirit for enabling grace uh, that we would live according to the truth that we hear. We will then read the entirety of the passage and then break it down uh, accordingly for some applications. So let us pray together. Father God, we come to your Holy Scripture this morning. We are beggars in need of divine intervention in our lives, divine revelation of your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask for God, the Holy Spirit, to enable us this morning to see Jesus. We ask for the Holy Spirit this morning to convict our hearts where needed, to comfort our hearts where appropriate, and to give, convince us in the deepest part of our souls of the truth of your word. We ask, Lord, for your help this morning by grace, that we would find the plain meaning of the text that we have before us. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This is the word of God this morning. Let us look at the first 26 verses of chapter 4. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is uh, that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, I will, will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir... I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worship on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worship, worshiper will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, 
I who speak to you am he. This is God's word for us. Thanks be to God this morning. So as we look at this text this morning, uh, this is probably quite familiar to all of us. And one thing that I want to say is that as we unfold this text, this text this morning, everyone who has gathered here this morning, whether you were invited by your family member, whether you've been here every Lord's Day, whether you've been away in your back, this morning, this is a divine appointment. It is, it is not an accident whatsoever, coincidence, uh, circumstantial things coming together in the perfect way that brought you here. It is a divine appointment. It is a, an appointed time for you and for me to meet with the Lord Jesus. It is a divinely appointed time for us to hear from the inspired Word of God. This is a divine appointment. We will see that a divine appointment is necessary for us to have a divine revelation of the person of Jesus Christ. And so, as we look at this text this morning, keep those things in mind, that this is a divine appointment. We know in our society, we have kind of an obsession with celebrity, right? There's this obsession with, with celebrity and being known. Reality television, you know, there's all kinds of TV shows where these reality people, they put their daily lives on display that they might be known. See, to be known seems to be kind of like an obsession for some of them. To be recognized by others seems to fulfill some sense of worth for them and for some people. Even to be known in an unflattering way seems to be okay. Even if I'm known in an unflattering way, at least I'm known. Because they have, they have this obsession with being known. To be known seems to them to be worth something. If I'm known, I'm worth something. Even if I'm known for something horrible, at least I'm known. So that's true. And then at the same time, in our society, many people want to just remain anonymous. Some desire to just remain totally unknown. Think about that in church, in a church setting. Some people come to church for a long time. They never fully commit to, to being part of the body. And why they do that is that they want to retain some anonymity. If I'm unknown, I'm not accountable. If I'm unknown, nothing will be expected of me. So they come in and, and hide in a church. I've even had somebody say to me that they wanted to go to a larger church so they could hide. Like, wow, really? You want to go to a large church so you can just hide and be unknown? That is kind of the, the blessing of a small church, isn't it? It's pretty hard to hide. It, it is pretty hard to hide. Yet, yet there are some of us who, who, who want to, to, to hide and to remain uh, anonymous. See, to remain anonymous, though, for, for, for some, I think, is the desire really to maintain autonomy. If, if I'm unknown, then I'm the one in charge, right? If nobody knows me, I'm in charge. Don't tell me what to do, as my little Kate used to say when she was a baby. And 
No matter what we told her, don't tell me adieu, daddy. Don't tell me adieu, right? Because she wanted to maintain that autonomy, right? Well, sometimes we see that people want to remain anonymous because of that same desire, is to hold on to autonomy. Well, in our passage this morning, we see a Samaritan woman, and she has a desire to actually remain unknown, to be unnoticed, and to be autonomous. She's met by Jesus who desires not only to know her, because he already does, but to be known by her. And in our text this morning, we'll see that there's this divinely appointed meeting between two people who are divinely separated by culture and by the will of God. And we see Jesus meet the Samaritan's woman great need by a divine intervention. And Jesus will show her that she is already divinely known by him. Then Jesus will make himself known to her by divine revelation. So as we look at the first two verses, we see that Jesus is divinely driven. He's divinely driven there. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus did not baptize, uh, but only his disciples, going on to verse 3, he left Judea and departed for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. See, Jesus, in the first two verses, is becoming known. He's becoming known by the Pharisees. He's growing in reputation as a teacher. Uh, he is being known as one who is gathering many disciples to himself, that he and his disciples are outgrowing John the Baptist and John the Baptist's popularity. And so Jesus here, seeking to retreat from the limelight, his moment is not yet, right? We notice that Jesus often brings up this idea that, that now is not my, my time, that the time for the revelation of who I am hasn't come yet, because he's speaking and looking forward to the cross, where the ultimate expression of who he is, love and wrath, and all of that displayed in one perfect moment, one absolute moment. He's always talking of that as, as the revelation, as the real revelation of who he is. So it's not his time yet. So he, he's desiring to retreat uh, to Galilee. And we know from John 20, 31, that the apostles John, John's aim in this account is that Jesus would be known. But, he, but more than being known as a, as a baptizer and a disciple maker and those who are growing, more than that, that Jesus is the Christ. That Jesus is the Son of the living God and that he would be believed on unto salvation. That's what John the Apostle's aim is. That when you see Jesus, when you come to know him, when he's revealed to you, that it's a revelation that, that causes faith unto salvation. Right? So Jesus has a desire to be known not for uh, his own purpose, but Jesus wants to be known that the Father would be known. The knowledge of himself that Jesus desires is more than that of a teacher, more than that of a disciple maker, but to know Jesus is to know God in a saving way. That to know Jesus is to know God in a saving way. To know him is to know him in a saving way. To be known of Jesus is to be loved by Jesus. To be known by him is to be loved by him. He loves you and he knows you in a saving way. To know Jesus and to love Jesus is to love God. 
To know Jesus and to be known of Him is by divine mercy, by divine grace, by divine prerogative, at a divinely appointed time, in a divinely appointed way. So Jesus has left the limelight of, of worldly popularity for a divine appointment. He is divinely driven by the Father and by the Spirit according to the determined will of God. To go to, as it says here in verse 4, is the same phrasings that we looked at in, in chapter 3 at some points. And he had to pass through Samaria. That is, it was the determined will of God that Jesus passed through Samaria. So this appointment with this woman at the well is like absolutely no accident. It is a divine appointment. It is the predetermined will of God that this meeting takes place. In submission to the determined will of God, of course, Jesus, in His humanity, goes. And He, in His humanity, is wearied from His journey and wearied from the heat of the day. So, here He comes to this place he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as, he's, as he was from the journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water. So here he comes. Jesus, according to the determined will of God, has an appointment with the most unlikely of people, a woman. Okay, not only that, a Samaritan woman. Okay, not only that, a woman of sketchy reputation. Contrast this with the appointment with that of Nicodemus that we saw in chapter 3. See, Nicodemus was born of the found people, the found people, the Jews. The Samaritan woman was born of a lost people, those outside the promises of God. Nicodemus' estimation of himself was as a, as a teacher of what is sound. The Samaritan woman knew that she was despised of the Jews. She was despised by her own people. She was ashamed to be known because this divine appointment occurs in the sixth hour. It is high noon. It is when it is hottest. It is the hottest point of the day. And the time for drawing water was customarily done in the cool hours of the early morning. It would make sense, right? Because you would go once to gather your, all of the water that you needed for the whole day, right? You would gather that early in the morning, and that's the water that you would need to last you throughout the day, and you go back the next morning and do the same thing, right? You draw all your water for the day. Well, Jesus really comes here to this place empty-handed. He comes with nothing with which to draw the water out, right? Because the little footnote that says that his disciples had gone to get food meant that they held the, the things that, that he, they would have used to draw water out. He, he had nothing to draw the water out with. So he comes, he's there empty-handed, and he has nothing uh, to, to draw this water out with, and he meets with a woman who has nothing with which to redeem herself. It's kind of not coincidental, right? Here Jesus is, he has nothing in hand, he can't draw water. He asks her for a drink, and here comes a woman, and she has nothing redeemable about herself in herself. She is a woman 
She is a Samaritan. She is a sketchy woman as far as her reputation goes. She has come in the middle of the day so as not to be seen by the crowd that would normally be there. She's ashamed and she wants to remain anonymous. She wants to remain unknown. And here is this interaction with her and Jesus. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away in the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jewish men, to remain clean, to remain ceremonially clean, would avoid going through Samaria at all. And as, this is as Jesus' disciples did to go get food. They went around. They didn't go through Samaria, but they went around to get food, and then they're going to, to, to come back, right? Um, they, a good Jew, would to remain clean, he would just have avoided Samaria altogether. But Jesus, it says, had to pass through Samaria. That is, in obedience to the Father, it was determined, his determined will that Jesus meet this woman in this hour and at this place. And the Samaritan woman finds Jesus' request incredulous, doesn't she? She says, Jesus said to her, give me a drink. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? She finds this an incredulous statement. Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. It might be rendered this way to get us uh, to wrap our heads around it since we're not in, in that culture. It might be rendered better this way. A faithful Jewish man would have no common participation with the Samaritans as it pertains to their faith. To keep oneself uh, from being unclean, and un a faithful Jew would not even travel there. A faithful Jew would not be alone with a, with, with a, a woman, much less an unclean Samaritan woman. A faithful Jew would have no common worship, no common grounding and understanding of the Scriptures, therefore would most certainly not ask an unclean Samaritan woman to draw water and share the use of a ceremonially unclean vessel. Because that is, in a sense, what he's asking. I have nothing to draw water with. Give me a drink. And he would share in that same vessel with this unclean person, which would make him ceremonially, in the Jewish mind, unclean. Samaritan interaction then would have been avoided at all costs. But here Jesus is boldly and bluntly coming to her, asking her for a drink. And as I think about this, and I, I want us to think about this as, as, as a people, um, what kind of people do we avoid contact with in our lives? Do you avoid eye contact? And some of these things I'm going to say right ahead, I'm guilty of these things, so I'm just, I'm not picking on anybody. Do you avoid eye contact with the homeless person who's asking for change? Because then if you don't see him, you don't have to help him, right? If you don't see him, you don't have to reach out to him. If he's unknown to you, he's unloved by you, right? I don't need to love him. I don't know him. I'm just saying that might be part of our heart problem. Do you see certain behaviors and cultures as somehow less than you? Do you see like maybe same-sex attracted people and that disgusts you? Do you see sometimes liberal pro-choice people and look at them and say, that's really not redeemable? 
Because you look at the actions and behaviors and say it's disgusting and I can't have any part of it. Do we avoid those kinds of people? But then on the converse side, are there people who disdain you for your Christian faith? Are there those who see you as a weak-minded intellectual midget because you believe the scriptures to be the inerrant, infallible, inspired word of God? Do you see people as rejects who reject you? Do you recognize the great need for all people of all ethnicities and of all proclivities and backgrounds and sins? Do you see that every human on the planet has the same need? And that same need is a divine appointment with the person of Jesus? And you might be the one assigned. I just, I was thinking about this week and, and praying about all the times that I have neglected the divine appointments that came my way. You know, I'm in a coffee shop talking with a guy who I know doesn't know Jesus, a great guy. I, I like him. We, we have become friends. And then I walk away, never bringing up the topic of salvation, faith, any of those things. I walk away and I go, man, he said some things that should have triggered me to say some other things. This was a divine appointment and I missed it. I neglected it. I was seeing that, you know, because he's, the guy is very smart, very capable, very moral. He's done very well with his life. I'm like, what would I be able to tell him about life? He's 78 years old, and he's a heck of a great guy. But he needs Jesus. And God has given me divine appointment after divine appointment that I have ignored. So I'm just thinking that in our lives, can we think of those divine appointments we've had where there was an opportunity to give somebody the love of God in the person of Jesus and we shrunk back from that responsibility? Or do we see that great need as Jesus, a divine appointment? Jesus answers her in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. See, as we've seen in previous texts, Jesus takes the situation beyond the ceremonial, doesn't he? He takes it beyond the ceremonial, beyond the cultural, and he gets to the great need that overcomes this great divide. Jesus wants to get to the great need in this woman's life that will overcome this great divide between them. There's a great divide between the Samaritan woman and godliness. There's this great divide. And he says, if you knew the gift that I was offering to you and who it was that I was offering to you, you would say to me, give me a drink. You give me water. See, the great need is the transformative work of God, the Holy Spirit in our lives from the inside out. It is an internal work of God from the inside out. There's this great gift. The statement to the Samaritan woman in verse 10 seems to me like this, similar to the same statement that, that, that Jesus says to Nicodemus in chapter 3, verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus' statement here in verse 
10, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked, and He would have given you living water. It's as if He's saying again, in order for you to receive what it is that you must be born again. There's a transformative work that is a gift from God for you. It's as if He's saying, if you knew God, if you really knew Him, you would know me. If you knew the gift that I offer is the life-giving Spirit washing over you from above, you would ask of me, and you would be transformed from the inside out. You would be cleansed of your sin with the cleansing Spirit of God. Jesus would say, the gift that I offer you is soul-satisfying life that will quench your thirst for acceptance from any earthly creature or any earthly desire. To the Samaritan woman, as it was to the ruler of the Jews, the same thing. To overcome your separation from the kingdom of God, a divine intervention must take place. That's what Jesus is offering here, a divine intervention. This is divinely intervening into her life. A divine intervention must take place. You must be born again. You must receive the life-giving Spirit by grace through faith in Christ Jesus as a gift to be reconciled unto God. And for all of us, we can hearken our minds probably to Romans as we often do, and think, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. How will those that we avoid and disdain come to faith unless you intervene? How will those that you deem less than come to faith unless you intervene in their lives by proclaiming the life-changing gospel? Will you and I ignore the will of God in bringing us divine appointments? Will we be like Jonah and head to Tarshish because God has appointed us to go to Nineveh? No one wants to go to Nineveh, right? As the VeggieTales thing went, you know, nobody wants to go to Nineveh. They're fish slappers, right? Nobody wants to go there. So go to Tarshish and avoid the will of God, right? Ignore the will of God. It, and, and be free from the disdain of Nineveh, right? To you who have been born again, though, it has been, you have been given the words of reconciliation and the ministry, that is, the job, to reconcile the dead in spirit to life in God through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus. And I believe this wholeheartedly, that every day God makes appointments for His believers. He makes appointments for us every day. By virtue of the places that we go, and the people that we meet. And I'm asking myself, and I hope that you will ask yourself this morning, how long will I keep heading to Tarshish when God has in store for me Nineveh? God has in store for you and for me Nineveh. Verse 11, The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us his well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. The Samaritan woman tries to connect with Jesus, right? So Jesus is telling her that this is an internal thing, that you must be changed, right? And she, in her natural self, just starts saying, no, we are already connected. Our father is Jacob. We have a common father. 
Samaritan, so she tries to connect with him. She says, he's the father of the Samaritans as well as the Jews, so we have some common ground. There's no need for reconciliation. The Samaritans have rejected, see, all of the books except for the Pentateuch, right? Those books of Moses. They've blended the testimony of God in the Scriptures with their own interpretations. Yet here, she wants to connect with Jesus by claiming a common father. Well, that brings me to the point that I started out with this morning, that that is the purpose and the reason why I have the confessions and creeds as part of our service. See, these were they were they were blending all kinds of things together and calling it the same thing, and it wasn't. So the purpose for creeds and confessions is that we agree. That is what brings unity. We agree. This is who Jesus really is according to the scriptures, right? It's just a way for us to know the truth uh, defined and to have it, that's what we have in common. That's what we share. If we don't share that, we don't share the same faith. We don't share the, share the same gospel. We don't believe the same truth, right? So she's trying to level the playing field here by saying, yeah, Jacob's our father too, and he had this well here, and... Uh, he drank from it, and all of his ancestors afterwards, they have drank from it. So where are you going to get a well that produces as good as our father Jacob's well has produced? You have nothing to draw water with. This well has been producing all these years, and here's the thing, what's really cool about this is that that well is still producing water now. It is still producing water today, and abundantly it's producing water today. And she says, is your source greater than that? Well, of course it is in Jesus. He's the heavenly source, right? There's a greater source. These earthly sources, Jesus says, will never finally and fully give you life. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But him who drinks of the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become a spring in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. See, Jesus says, these earthly sources, they will never fully satisfy your great need. Because her great need is transformation. Her great need is not water to drink, but her great need is, is to be known and to be loved and to know God and to love Him, right? The things that you're doing in this life, he would say to the Samaritan, you know, kind of the subtext is that they might temporarily satisfy a thirst within you, but they will not bring you eternal life. The source of life giving waters from above by divine mercy and by grace gifted to you so that you are being transformed to new life and you will have this source in you. See, he's talking about an internal transformation, right? Not an external obedience or an external faith. He's talking about an internal transformation. This source will be within you. Again, I think it mirrors Ezekiel 36, 27. It says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Don't we get that backwards in religion? In a religious sense, we think that, you know, if we just start walking according to the word of God and doing what he says and we carefully obey His rules, then He will love me and find favor with me. 
Not according to the scriptures. According to the scriptures, it's God's work. That I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and cause you to be careful to obey my rules. It is God's work in us, every bit of it, from beginning to the end. Let us notice what the Samaritan woman's response here is in verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I will not be thirsty or have to come here again to draw water. So this woman is an unregenerated, unsanctified, unrepentant person. Her unrepentant, unsanctified mind of this woman, she still, even after this statement, speaks of earthly things. She says, I want water from a source so that I will... It, what she's after is, I want to make it so that I never have to come here again. I never have to bear my shame. I never have to be known. I can remain anonymous and autonomous. If you give me this water, well, I never have to come to this well again. I can remain anonymous and autonomous. The women won't know me. I'll never have to come and be scared that I have some chance appointment with one of these people. I want to remain unknown. So yeah, give me this water that I will never thirst again, but never have to come back there again. I'll never have to come here again. You see, coming to the well for her was risky. She was at risk of being recognized. Her shame would be known. Her deeds were known if she was to be seen. If she never came to the well, she could remain anonymous. Does this not take us back to chapter 3 at all? And this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest their works should be exposed. Listen to how Jesus responds to her in verses 16 through 19. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Jesus says, you are exposed before me. You cannot hide. You are an open book to me. I know you. I know your heart. I know your sin. And I am at here, at this time, in this place. I know you. And I offer you a gift of life-changing spirit. Life-changing water. I know you. I know everything about you. And this is an appointed time for you and for me. I'm here to give you life. I'm here because I already know you. No matter how sh ashamed you are, I know you and I want to know you. I'm here on purpose. I'm here intentionally to know you, he says to her. I know you and I still I offer you this life-giving gift. And we see that she is starting to perceive Jesus for who he is, but she doesn't know him in a life-saving way. She doesn't quite know him in a life-saving way. First we saw in verse 9, she just referred to him as a Jew. He's a Jew. Then in verse 11, it was sir. And now here in verse 19, 
The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. So she's gone from a Jew to a sir to a prophet. He is being revealed to her. Jesus is unfolding a revelation of himself to her in this God-appointed moment. But not ready for repentance yet, because that's what it takes is repentance and faith. You have to turn from your sin. But her, not ready for repentance yet, tries to change the subject. He just told her that he knows everything about her and all about her sin, right? Do you think that if she was trying to defend herself, right, she might say something to contradict that? But no, she changes the topic. She changes the topic in verse 20. And she says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So you see what she's doing here? If I change the topic, I won't be exposed. If I change the topic, he won't further press me here. If I change the topic, I won't have to repent and believe. I can remain anonymous and I can remain autonomous. I don't have to do anything with it. Let's change the topic. Let's get him off of that topic. Let's just talk about something I'm sure he would love to talk about because of who uh, people say he is. He would love to talk about worship. Let me get him on that topic, right? So she, she switches gears here and she says that, hey, it's been told that, that uh, our people say that we're supposed to worship here on this mountain and you say that in Jerusalem is where people ought to worship. And Jesus, again, going above and beyond, says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. See, he's, he's getting here that uh, she brings up all of these differences, right? She brings up, she's still bringing up the differences that they have. She's still bringing up the fact that they have been uh, synchronistic in their worship. That is that they have gathered a little bit of Judaism and a little bit of their own thing. And they've kind of blended that together. And the Samaritans have twisted this scripture, taken stuff out they didn't like, added stuff to it. So they decided that they'll worship on Mount Gerizim and not in Jerusalem as it was prescribed in the scripture. But Jesus says, I'm going to expand this and talk to you about something else. That true worship comes from the heart of the worshiper. That true worship is a matter of the heart. True worship is a matter of being transformed, which is what I've been talking to you about all along. See, he never lets her off the hook. He stays on point the whole time. That is about a transformation that this woman needs, and that's the whole point of the divine intervention here, right? True worship comes from true worshipers, Jesus would tell her. The Jews have been chosen, you see, and they were given the oracles of God. They have the tradition. They have the teaching, and they have the truth of God's law. They worship the God who has made himself known to themselves. And then Jesus says, indeed, salvation comes from the Jews. That's what the statement really means here when he says that. He says, um, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain uh, nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for. Salvation is from the Jews. And what he's saying is the rescuer 
for you has come from the Jews. He's declaring something about himself. Yes, they have all the tradition and all the teachings and all the law. But he's saying salvation comes from the Jews. Without bluntly saying it, I am he. I am the rescuer to come. So the rescuer has come in the person of Jesus. You don't know. We worship what we know. You don't know. You don't know me. You don't know me. Here I am before you. You don't know me. I know you, but you do not know me. The rescuer you need comes from the Jews. And he says, but then the hour is now here when worship will come not just from Jerusalem, but it'll come from the whole world, from everyone transformed, from those transformed Samaritans who've been given new life by God's grace and mercy to uh, from Judea to Samaria to the uttermost ends of the earth, right? Even the Gospel of John's pattern here has been exactly what uh, Acts 1, uh, 8 tells us. The pattern has been, first, there was a Jewish man in Jerusalem who comes to him, Jerusalem. Then he goes to the Judean countryside, Judea. Now, here he is in Samaria. They're following that same pattern. The gospel writer in John is following that as we go forward from Samaria to now all of the nations being blessed by Jesus coming and doing a transforming work by the power of the Holy Spirit in lives where true worship comes from the heart when, the, when God will send a rescuer to transform all who believe from all nations to be a people for himself. You see, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. You see, right worship will come from the right heart. Worship comes from divine revelation, he says. And now he's going to put the closing point on this, that the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshiper will worship the Father in spirit and in truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah is coming. He is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. See, she still thinks it's kind of debatable, right? He, she still thinks it's kind of debatable between her and him. When, when, when the Messiah comes, he'll, he'll tell us all things, and then we'll know whether you're right or I'm right or whether we're both wrong, right? He, he'll tell us all things. It's like that old saying I've said to my kids a couple of times, I would agree with you, but then we'll both be wrong, so I can't agree with you. But, right? but this sort of thing of like, when the Messiah comes, then, then we'll know who's right. And then Jesus just reveals himself in no way that any of the other gospel writers show. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Think about that. When you, when you read the Gospel of Mark and you see kind of this moment when Peter says, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, well, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's kind of the first recording of the revelation of who Jesus is. But here in John's Gospel, it is Jesus himself who declares to this woman who he is. I, who you speak to, am he. 
So I want us to think about that this morning. If you have run away from the Lord or you've been away from Him in your heart or if you have never received Him, and if you're evaluating your life at all right now and you say, man, I, am, I have made a mess of things. I've gone to places I shouldn't go. Uh, if anybody knew me, they'd hate me. I used to think that way, is that if you really knew me, you would not like me. And I was quite concerned about that. That if you really knew who I was inside, not the things you see publicly, but if you knew my heart and you knew my mind and you knew the things that I thought, you would not like me. I used to worry about that until the Lord Jesus got a hold of me. Because he says, I know you in that way. I know you in that way. And I'm about to do a work in your life. So I don't care how far away you are or how wretched you think you are or how bad you've done or how far away you've drifted from the Lord. I believe that today, right now, is a divine appointment for you. And that Jesus says, I know you and I have a gift for you. I have a gift for you today. And you can't earn it, brother. You can't earn it, sister. You can't earn this gift I'm giving to you right now. Jesus is saying the gift that I give to you is the life-giving spirit from heaven coming down to rain a shower upon your heart and cleanse you from all sin and all unrighteousness. No matter how dirty you've been, I love you. No matter how dirty you've been, I'll clean you. No matter how imperfect you are, I am perfect and I will change you from the inside out. Guess what? In order to do that, you've got to be known. You've got to make yourself be known of Jesus. You have to be willing to be exposed. To be willing to be exposed, though, is a work of the Spirit, isn't it? Because I would tell you this, that I bet you all of us in this room have certain places in our lives that we hide. We're, we're in hiding a little bit. But as we grow in the Lord, right, it is growing in faith and in trust in Him where He takes the secret places and He exposes them. And when He exposes them, you know what's really weird is that you always think that this one thing, if the Lord just knew it, He'd reject me this time. And then He receives you once again when you've exposed that place to Him. He says, I'm changing you. I'll change you. I'll fix it. Trust me. Believe in me. I came and died for that place, brother, sister, whatever it is. I came and died for that. Whatever that sin is, I died for that place. Expose it to me. You can't get rid of it until you expose it. You can't get rid of it until I can see it and change it. Until you can expose it before me. Until you can be honest before God. Right? And here this Samaritan woman has been given opportunity to be honest before God. And up to this point, she's kind of still in hiding. And we'll see next week that she gets even more revelation of who he is. So let us take a moment and just pause.
that we might receive God's word um, as God intended for us to receive it this morning. And then we will take a moment of silence and then we will close out. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for using a broken vessel like myself, Lord, and I pray and I know that your Holy Spirit will have overcome my folly and my shortcomings this morning, that your will be done in the lives of those who heard and listened to your word. I pray, Lord, that none of us walk out of here unchanged. I pray, Lord, that we would uh, be those who are willing to be honest before you, Lord, exposing ourselves and our great need to you, that you might wash us clean by your grace and by your mercy, Lord, that you would enable us to walk in the truths that we heard this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.